I am six days into my retirement. Very disorienting, to be honest with you. Though I played golf twice this week. Got my new golf handicap. I'm 9.6. Nick, you're in trouble. If you, ever pl- if you ever have the guts to play me. For the first time, I am playing off of the yellow tees. Because I've joined this old man's group over there. Nine o'clock every morning, tee off. I've lost six, seven dollars in bets already this week. Bunch of old conniving cheaters they are. But yellow tees, I never, my ego does not allow me to play from yellow tees. Now, if you don't know anything about golf, blue is for the big boys like Vince. White's the normal ones, then yellow, then gold, then red for the women. Okay, It's just not fair. Feminism should be equal. Men and women should hit from the same place. I'm saying this only to let you know that in my disoriented state, I have forgot to send the notes that go for the overheads. That's the only purpose I'm telling you this. Because you, all of you would know that I'm only 45 by looking at me. You would not think I'm very old. Um, so you're going to need to either open your Bible app to follow with the text or there's Bibles in the windows. Uh, don't go outside. It's raining. And since it's raining, I can preach quite a long time because you don't want to go out there anyway. So anyway, last week, uh, Marie started a series on hospitality, and it was an incredible orientation for us to engage ourselves in the practice of hospitality. This week, I want to talk about hospitality as a place to belong. Every one of us can identify with times in our life. Can I better turn that fan off or my notes are going to go shooting every which way here. Oh, thank you, since I don't know technology. We didn't have electricity when I was born. No cars, no airplanes, no nothing. Every one of us can identify with times in our lives when we have been absolutely alone, abandoned, lost, broken, seems that everyone and anything has just sort of disappeared out of our lives. I don't care how old we are or how young we are. Even growing up, I remember when I was nine years old, it seemed like the whole world had just sort of walked out of my life. And I was living at home and my parents, both parents loved me and all of that stuff. But there are those moments when you just feel totally gone. We've experienced being unloved. Either a girlfriend broke up with us or our parents abandoned us or family doesn't want anything to do with us or the, the myriad of ways in which we in this world can feel unloved, it's, it's, it's astounding. And it can go really quick. It can go from one minute of feeling totally loved and supported and the next minute it's just gone and you wonder where it went to. We know what it's like to be fired from a job we've always wanted to have and and what that would mean. Some of us know what that feels like. Uh, Some of us have had to leave home before we wanted to because either we were asked to or we needed to or choices we made uh, forced the issue or whatever. It even extends to moving to a foreign country and living in a place that nothing is familiar, language, food, you name it, nothing is familiar, trying to find our way around the place. 
There's something in our DNA that just wants to connect. There's something in our DNA that says, I want to belong to something, something bigger than myself. And uh, we just never get away from that. We want to be known and we want to know. That's why we risk marrying one another is because the need to know and to be known surpasses our fears of being abandoned and lost. I read a book uh, several months ago about segregated societies and communities. And it suggests in this book that our segregated communities are not always the result of a racist attitude of our larger society. They've gone back and, and researched the experiments that we've had around our country and really around the world uh, 25, 30 years ago when we put people together from various races, white, black, Hispanic, whatever, in, into the same community. And within 25 years, those communities have gone with a single race. Why? The research shows that it's because people want to know and be known. They want to be around things that are familiar, that are like them, that they don't have to explain themselves and they don't have to defend themselves and they don't have to be anything but themselves. And so naturally, our need to be one with ourselves and with the, those around us means that we gradually just choose to go that direction. That does not mean there's no racism by any means. In fact, if honestly, as a psychologist, I would suggest that all of us are racist. Somewhere back in the cave era when we were discovering fire or something, we figured out that we were safer if we could discover who was us and who was not us. And it was a matter of our own survival that we learned to differentiate our differences. So when somebody says, I'm not racist, they're really not being accurate about their own humanity. I notice differences, and so do you. In fact, racism is so subtle to me. I, I have a really good friend in, in Portland, Oregon. One time I said, surely Portland is not as racist as where you came from in Kansas City. And he says, no, but it's more subtle. And I says, well, what does that mean? He says, well, have you ever walked down a sidewalk and you see people a block away moving across the sidewalk and going down the other side so they don't have to go past you? Or he says, have you ever lived in a place where someone always defines you as white Bob Bretch? He says, how come we can't just say Travis Stovall instead of black Travis Stovall? And it's just that innate part of us that we understand that there are differences. And that is truly a form of racism. And not one of us can stand up here and say, I am not racist. So why don't we just get over it and deal with it? Which is where hospitality comes in. What a concept. Last week, Marie challenged us, invited us to practice hospitality. That's calling of every Christian is to practice hospitality because we're really not so good at it. We much prefer the caveman approach. 
Serving angels unaware, she suggested, which is an attitude of eager anticipation of how can I connect with those who are not like me or someone who is like me but is, found, is, is in, a, in a dire situation or someone like me who is in the top of the world and how do I connect with them? We see this same thought in our first verse this morning, Matthew 25. It's a verse you probably don't even have to look up because you've probably heard it a million times if you've grown up a Christian. Matthew 25, 37 through 40. Lord, when did we see you hungry? See, the attitude here is, when did we see beyond you to see that you were hungry? When did we see that you were thirsty and we gave you a drink? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. See, the issue is not whether we feed the hungry and clothe the naked. The ultimate issue is, are we seeing Jesus in these people? Do we see that person and do we see the Jesus that resides within them? Because Jesus resides in all of us in some way or form. Maybe Hitler. I don't know. I don't know how to deal with Hitler. Okay. That's God's business. This verse invites us to eagerly look forward to find people who are emotionally, physically, spiritually, or mentally hungry and thirsty. I would dare say that that probably includes all of us. But it also includes the people downstairs right now getting ready for lunch. It includes your boss, the one you like or the one you don't like. It includes everyone that you come in contact with. We are eagerly to look, to see Jesus in those people. And the only way we can do this is if we live a lifestyle of hospitality, of looking to see how we can serve them. Now, this is the one that should have been up here, so I'll probably read it twice for emphasis here, okay? Our looking to see Jesus in others becomes more powerful than our desire to exist within the known. Isn't that good? I wrote that, so I'm going to say it one more time, okay? Our looking to see Jesus in others becomes more powerful than our desire to exist within the known, No longer do we see terrorists, but we start looking to see where Jesus is in their lives. No longer do we see a bunch of thieves, but we look to see that which reflects Jesus in their lives. White, black, brown, pink, or whatever, all are brothers and sisters of our larger Jesus family. We all belong. Whosoever will may come. There's no there's no lock on the door. That uncontrollable teenager, there's Jesus in that life. That crazy wife or that stubborn, unsmart husband, there's Jesus in that life. The least of these. And may I suggest that the least of these that gets ignored the most is your own inner life. 
it's, it's a lot easier to go down and feed the homeless than it is for me to deal with myself honestly. To deal with the real Bob Bretch behind all of this stuff out here. When Jesus says to feed and to clothe and to bathe and to care for the least of these, he says, come on, you guys. Don't you want more out of your life? Do you really want to settle with your life the way it is right now, just living on the surface, just bouncing around there? Don't you want to go deep? Don't you want to know and be known? Don't you want to release yourself into an enriching experience that is so unique Everyone else wonders, what in the world happened to you? Jesus wasn't teaching anything new. He just extrapolated from one of my favorite verses in Micah, Micah 6, verse 8. You probably sang it in Sunday school if you grew up in a church. He has told you what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, that's an active reorienting of the abuses of our society to love kindness and loyalty to love kindness and loyalty could you imagine how transformative it would be if our politicians loved kindness and loyalty they would stop being third graders out there throwing mud at each other they're just idiots aren't they I just ugh. They're just third-grade idiots. And I just read a book about uh, Benedict Arnold, and, and the Congress in his day was just as bad, if not worse. So it is some, in spite of all of this, as Winston Churchill said, um, um, whatever we are. <laughs> Can't remember the phrase now. is better than all the other systems, Okay. Um, well, well that, that, I am getting old. Before I go senile here, I'll try to finish the sermon. Um, to love kindness and loyalty. To engage ourselves in meaningful kindness. Just be kind. Just be nice. You can say your differences, but you don't have to be snarky about it. And to walk with awareness to walk with awareness. To not wake up, turn on the news, get in the car, turn on the radio, go to work, come home, turn on the news, watch it until you go to sleep at night, and that's your life. Do you really think that's a good life? Now, this was all preliminary, so let's just take a moment and pray. I'm not going to be that long on the second half either, but I, anyway, let's pray. Lord, as we move into our text this morning, we just ask that your spirit will truly invite us, encourage us, unscare us to open up the lock inside of our hearts so that we can release ourselves to be known and to know and to see you everywhere we go. In Jesus' name, amen. Our text this morning is found in Luke chapter 19. You also know this one probably. 1 through 10. But we're only going to look at about five or six of those verses. But the story is that. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. 
Now, we all think Jesus went to Jericho to see Zacchaeus. A man there by the name of Zacchaeus, or Zacchaeus, depending on which religious tradition you come out of, and I'll ask you later, he was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. He did not eat his vegetables, children, when he was a kid. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your home today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All of the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. They hadn't learned to see Jesus everywhere. They didn't see Jesus in this man, this chief tax collector, this thief and this robber. Okay, here are the lessons. Okay, we're going to go through class, write them down. We'll have a test next week. Number one. Being open to someone else was Jesus' lifestyle. Being open to someone else was Jesus' lifestyle. That's how he operated. That's how he did things. He was just passing through. He was going somewhere. He had a plan for that day. He had a schedule to meet. He was just like you. He had his day knowing where he was going. Have you ever wondered, by the way, who was waiting for him at the other end of the, of the day, had supper on, and how long did they wait before they finally figured out Jesus wasn't going to show up? He was not kicking back and relaxing and saying, oh, man, I'm six days retired. I can do anything I want to do. Unfortunately, my wife has a pretty long list. She's in Colorado right now, however, so screw the list. <laughs> I'm going golfing tomorrow. <laughs> anyway, his day was just like yours and mine, full of things to do. He was just passing through. He had somewhere to go to. He had goals. He had aspirations. He had an operating plan. He was following it as he entered Jericho. And don't think for a minute Jesus didn't operate that way. Remember when he was 12 years old and they couldn't find him for three days? When they show up and he says, hey, come on, I'm about my father's business. I've got plans. I've got a designated life to live here. I've got goals and aspirations and I'm doing what I came here to do. Don't think for a minute he didn't operate that way. He's just as A-type as you are. Or when his mom came to him and said, Hey, son, you know, they just ran out of wine over here. Can you do something about it? He said, Mom, my time isn't right now. Then he went ahead and did it anyway, but, you know, because whatever. So being open to someone was Jesus' lifestyle. It can also be yours and mine, just Whatever. Which leads us to lesson number two. Jesus knew that most ministry or hospitality, however you want to put that, is done in unplanned moments. It rarely comes planned. I'm going to go love the homeless today. 
No, the homeless come into your space. What are you going to do about it? Jesus knew that most hospitality is done in unplanned moments. They will interrupt you. Your child will climb on your lap when you least want it just before the touchdown is to be made. It will test you. Jesus' day planner did not have an entry that said, I'm going to Jericho and then I'm going to go home and spend the afternoon with Zacchaeus. I will stop, I will look up into the tree and I will see him and I will invite myself home and all will be well. That is not what his day planner said. Eugene Peterson in his book, uh, Working the Angles, suggests that we will all begin we should all begin to look for the unplanned encounters. Someone else has said that if you ever think you're going to do an hour's worth of work in ministry, get an hour's work of worth, a hour's worth of work done in an hour doing ministry, you will be disappointed your entire life. You never get an hour's worth of work done when you are looking to see Jesus and other people. Lawyers, I don't know what you're going to do. Thirdly, Zacchaeus had a name. This is important. This may be the most vital part of this story. Zacchaeus had a name. Not everyone has a name. In fact, most people don't have a name. Most people will live and die, and they will not have their names written in any history book of American adventures or whatever it is. There's a lot of people in your life that you do not know their names. Do you know the name of the homeless vet that's asking for money there at the corner of the freeway 44 and right there by Steak and Shake? I don't. I see him, but I'm always on the other side, so I have an excuse. But those of you that come down from Love's better know his name by next Sunday. But do you know his name? No. Most of us do not. There you go. There you go. When I was a, when I was a young pastor in San Diego, El Cajon Boulevard, every night, two little prostitutes came down to the corner about three blocks from my church. And I'd pass them regularly almost every day, coming to get ready for some meeting or some committee or something I was having to do. And I he was even convicted in those days. I need to know their names. Jesus would know their names. Jesus would know who they are. But I was married to a young wife, and she's going to say, how did you know Bubbles' name anyway? <laughs> I didn't have the guts to do it. But most people in our existence do not have names to us. They are nameless. I learned this early on. When Bev and I began, uh, began a nonprofit in Portland after, right after Columbine High School, and we said, we got to do something. Our generation demands us to do something for kids to help this not happen again in Portland, Oregon. So we started a nonprofit called Empowered Kids, and we did a variety of things besides day camp programs in the summer with the Boy Scouts, and they gave us their camp, and we bust kids out of the inner city up there. Most of them had never actually walked on grass with bare feet. 
they were living in, in dumpster places with concrete and broken asphalt and all that stuff. And, and so just getting them out and letting them play in grass was an amazing adventure for some of them. Anyway, we started that, and one, one day, a little 11-year-old blonde-eyed, blue-eyed girl, one of the new newbies came, and, and it was always interesting to see who, which parent would show up to see if they would even care what we were doing. Most parents just didn't care. They didn't know us from Adam. We could drive up a car and say, hey, your kid want to go to summer day camp today? We're going to go out to, we'll be back at 4 o'clock. Yeah, jump. They jump right on in and out they go. Scary business. Scary business. Anyway, she showed up and her dad showed up to see who we were and what we were doing. And he'd come and whatever the program was, he'd stand in the background and just watch and didn't say anything. And I went up and introduced myself and got to know his name a little bit. And, and then he'd come the next time and the next time. And finally I said, hey, you're coming regularly. Hey, would you like to help us out? And so we gave him something to do, something to make him useful, connect him to, to what we were trying to operate on. And after a while, and he would come in and he would sweep up afterwards and he would you know he did all kinds of amazing things he came up to me one day and he said Bob thank you and I said for what I said I thank you you're the one helping out around here he says thank you for seeing me I said what he says thank you for seeing me he said, when I go to a store, everybody looks away. When I walk down the street, nobody's eyes will ever meet mine. Nobody ever looks at me, and you're one of the first guys I've known that will actually look at me and see me for who I am. He didn't say all of that, but that's what he meant. He says, you're the, you're the only guy I know that sees me. Boy, that rang some bells for me. And from that time on, I just, any, any parent, any little kid, I got down on their level so that I didn't have to look down, but I would kneel down so that their eyes were even with mine. And, and all the power things that we just take for granted, we don't even think about, we started, we started changing how we operated. And every new kid would come in, and I would purposely, during the event, I would go by and I'd tap their my hand on their head. And if they jerk back and there's sort of tear in their eyes, I knew things were not well at home. But if they responded and, you know, smiled and everything, and I said, okay, they're, they're safe at home. Just, just little ways to figure things out as you become aware of what's going on around you and the dynamics that are there. He said, no one ever looks at me and you have looked at me. One of my favorite all-time books is called Soul Prince. And in this book, it's, it's a Kabbalah book, but it's, it, tells, it, it suggests that every one of us has a soul print deep within us. And it's inside of a soul box. And rarely does anyone get to see what's inside the box. Our whole lives are determined to protect our soul print so that no one can hurt it, abuse it, deny it, destroy it, or whatever. 
And he says, the quest for humanity, you and I, is to learn to go and learn how to open up and to appreciate and to value each other's soul box, the soul print that is truly uniquely our own and no one else's is like that. It is our essence. Brendan Manning says, we all spend all of our time with this false image out here so that you see Bob Bretch and what you're seeing is what I am projecting out there. You don't see the soul print of Bob because Bob has a hard time opening up and not knowing if it's safe enough to open up so you can see really who truly I am. Zacchaeus had a name. Now, everybody hated the name. Everybody knew exactly how to peg him when, when they heard his name because he not only had a name, but he had lots of money. And not only did he have lots of money, but he was the chief tax collector, which means he not only stole from the people he collected from, but he also skimmed off the top of his other tax collectors. They hated him. And then he shot the rest of it to Rome, but he got to, to increase his own goods on a regular basis with hardly lifting a finger. Everybody hated this guy. You would have hated this guy. Worse than any IRS agent you've ever had to deal with. That was his outside name, however. When Jesus, passing through Jericho, looks up into that tree and sees a man by the name of Zacchaeus, he is looking for the soul print. He is looking to unlock that soul box inside of this man because he wants to go beyond his name. You know, he didn't climb up into the tree because he was short. He climbed up into the tree because it was far too dangerous to go through the crowd. All you had to do is imagine the most hated man in town trying to get to the front so he can see Jesus because he really wants to see Jesus. Oh, Zach. Oh, sorry, I didn't see you there, buddy. Oh, man, you know, and he starts walking and somebody swings their leg around and he trips and then a few other kick him in the ribs. And, you know, I mean, he would have been dead before he got to the front of that line. So he rushes to the tree. Jesus recognizes his desperation to see him, moves beyond his hated name into, I want to go to your house to know your real name. I want to know who you truly are. Centered in hospitality. Lesson number four, Jesus invited him home. Jesus didn't invite him to his home. Jesus invited himself to Zacchaeus' home. Remember that imagery in... in, uh, Revelation 3, where Jesus is knocking at the door of your heart. Behold, I stand and I knock. If anyone ends, will let me in. You see, you and I, it is so easy for us to stay in power positions. When I invite somebody to my house, I'm in the power position. I control the environment. I control the food. I can tell you how much to eat and how much not to eat. Which desserts you're going to eat and which ones you're not. It's 
one of the reasons that I don't give to the homeless on the side of the freeways is because it's my power position. I know that they need it sometimes. Some of them don't. Some of them do. It's really hard to know. But when we started this nonprofit, we gave every Christmas, we'd give all of our 60, 80, 100 kids, however many were attending at that moment in time for the Christmas party, we all I raised money and we gave them all Christmas gifts. But do you know what that meant? If there was a dad at home, it meant I am powerless. I can't even provide Christmas gifts for my kids. And the moms will do anything to give their kid the chance of having a gift. And so they would acquiesce. They would bring the kids. There was no dads that ever showed up at a Christmas giveaway. They were just, it took their masculinity right away. And after watching this for a year or two and then feeling as time went on, the kids got entitled. Well, I don't want that gift. I want that gift. How come that kid got that one? So we decided that the best way to operate was to give the families back their power. And so we opened up a thrift store where if they wanted to volunteer an hour's worth of work or a couple hours worth of work, they got to go in and get a Christmas gift for their kids. Or if they had $5, they could get a $40 gift for $5. They were in the power position. They could choose their own. And we stopped doing Christmas parties for inner city kids. Jesus invited himself home into the power position. He gave Zacchaeus the power. He gave it back to him. And he said, um, he said, I just want to come to get to know you. This story represents a broader implication of this word picture that we see in Revelation. First, Jews didn't invite themselves or go to someone else's house to eat. That was not a cultural norm for Jews. Now, you could go and meet at the corner cafe or you could go down the street and, and have a coffee and a, and a Danish together if they had those in Jesus' day. Those kind of encounters were just fine. But no one had the audacity and rarely were you ever invited into the home to eat a meal because to be invited into a Jew's home meant that I am inviting you to be with me the rest of my life. I am inviting your life to join my life. It's called mikdash miat. And it's a significantly real thing in the, in the Orthodox Jewish community. To be invited home is to be invited into the family. And Jesus says, I want to go to your house and I want to be invited into your family. Much more than just sharing a meal. Much more than just getting a confession out of Zacchaeus' lip. No, I want to spend eternity with you, journeying together with you. Nothing will ever break this bond ever again. This invitation of Jesus was an invitation to be intimately connected as friends forever. Now this is supposed to be showing up, so I'm going to read it again. And yes, I did write this too. This invitation of Jesus was an invitation to be intimately connected as friends forever. It was not a casual invitation. It was not... It meant that Jesus was offering himself to Zacchaeus to share life together for the remainder of their days. 
You don't take this hospitality stuff lightly. It's going to cost you a lot. It's going to change your lifestyle. It's going to change your attitude. It's going to change the way you see people. When Bev and I moved, and this is what Marie wanted me to share this morning, so I will use a private illustration, which I rarely do. But when Bev and I moved from Rolla, uh, to Rolla from Oregon about eight years ago, um, resigned my pastorate there with a group of people who love me and I love them, and, and sort of, I didn't stop the nonprofit. I thought I could do a long distance, but you know, if you run a nonprofit, you got to be right where it is because the money dries up because the connections drive up. So anyway, we ran two, two summer camps after we moved here, and after that I realized it wasn't going to work that way. So we came here, and we brought about eight or ten college-age kids from Portland uh, down to the hotel where we now live, and we had a house of prayer for a year where we helped teach the kids how to hear God's voice, how to identify his voice among others, how to get to know themselves in relationship to their true identity with Christ, and then what does that mean in ministry? Where do I go from here? How do I apply this into my adult life as I now emerge on? And that was what I thought we were going to be doing when we, when we came here. But uh, through a, a God-divine-ordained circuitous path, it became clear to us that he had called us to, to continue serving the least of these which defined for us taking on more uh, ministry to kids just as sort of we were doing in Portland, except there's no inner city Rolla. You guys run a clean town around here. So we looked around and we said, what can we do to help kids? And, and um, the foster program sucks. That's all I can say. It just is broken. And the longer I'm in it, the more broken it, it, it becomes. But we can only do what we can do. And so my, my goal was to not only open up a house for foster kids, but also to mentor others who wanted to be foster parents and to give them some tools that they don't necessarily get from the state. And so uh, January of 2013, we opened up our, we got our license and first three kids showed up and um, I went to be I prepared the school I said you know we're going to open up a house for for foster kids and in those days you could take more than two or three and so we ended up at one time with nine foster kids nine that nobody else wanted or would take I about died thought I'd you know what in the world have I done to myself Bev says you are crazy boy and uh, all of that good stuff. But um, I went there and said, we're going to have a house full of oh, foster kids. That, that's, all, that's all. Nobody ever said, what's their names? Who are they? What are they? What's their background? And what, oh, they're just foster kids. That's as far as it goes. And everybody got nervous. And the school got a little concerned over there in Newburgh. And I want to tell you right now, I, I, Newberg has treated our kids with respect. They are amazing teachers who have taken our ministry on and supported wholeheartedly and helped these kids succeed. I, I can't be prouder of a school system. I'd never, ever say anything bad about Newberg School. 
So they come to our house, and the first thing they're ever going to do is to test to see where's, where's your limit. I mean, that just, that's what they've learned all along is, number one, they've learned to manipulate, and then number two, they've learned to find out how far can I go before you want to kick me out of this house. And so it's just, it's a rugged beginning. It's just sort of tough. And, uh, and, and then as I looked at these three boys, I realized, you know, they've never been any place where they had any significance whatsoever. And so somehow God, God created this image. I don't know where it came from. I don't know if it was Bev's idea, my idea. I have no idea. But we started what we call the hands on the wall, which is a symbol of their soul print. They, we just paint their hand with latex paint, and we have a ceremony. They put their hands on the wall. We write their name, and we put the date that they entered our home. And all over our dining room wall is all these hands that we've had through the last six and a half, seven years. And um, then we, we write out a blessing, and we share a blessing with them. Not one of them, I don't think, has ever kept that blessing. But in the blessing, we tell them that once your name is on the wall, that means you belong to us. You are a part of our family from this day forward. I don't care what you do. I don't care what you've said. If you leave us on good terms, if you leave us on bad terms, I don't care. You know, and we've had kids that have slugged me on their way out of the house. I've had kids that, well, I just had one last week that showed up, Joe Macy. Some of you may remember him from Wednesday nights. About the most difficult, almost the most difficult kid I ever had. I wanted to kill him at least 50 times. He's going into the Marines next month. He drove down from St. Louis last Saturday just to see me. And he said, Bob, he says, I hated your guts. You were the worst badass I've ever encountered. But he said, I knew you loved me, and I knew that you wanted me to be the best that I could be. And he said, I just want to thank you. Here he is, a 19-year-old kid, drove all the way down there. I wouldn't have given you $5 if he had ever done that four years ago. But he came back because his hand is on the wall, and he belongs. Another kid did slug me. We had to call a sheriff. Sheriff took him out. He ended up in the mental hospital. There's about three of them around the state. I can give you their names if you want to know where they are. But when they don't know what to do with the kid, they put him in the, in the, in the hospital, and he was in the hospital for four months because nobody would take him. He's been back to our house four or five times. He comes back for Thanksgiving. He comes back for Christmas because this is home. And uh, he wants to be around family. Opening up the home in hospitality. And so we gave them a name. We gave them a place. We gave them usefulness. We gave them influence. They can change the rules of the house. We gave them as much competence as we could. Joe Macy was kicked out of school before I knew what an IEP was. And IEPs, you mean you're not supposed to be out of school more than 10 days. Well, they played that game, and he was out for six or seven weeks at the end of one school year. So I had him down lifting rocks at the river. Said, so you're not in school, then you're not going to be sitting here watching TV all day long. So Beb built a whole um, rock wall out there, probably worth 20000 bucks off of Joe Macy's labor. Thank you, Joe. I really appreciate that. Anyway, 
Um, I don't know where I was going with that one because I'm getting old. But um, we have invited these boys into our home and to learn their soul print. As a psychologist, it's just fascinating because I don't have to do a psyche vow. I get to live with it. And I get to understand and I get to see and I get to hear the, the wants and the longings and the, and the emergence and, and to look back at, at, at uh, Dylan and Anthony right now and just realize where they come from and where they're going. And, you know, it was hard for me to give up that dynamic on a regular basis six days ago. But it's been an amazing journey, and I can tell you that it was an outgrowth of the Zacchaeus story. This is not to say anything about my loveliness or my abilities or nothing. That wasn't what the intention was, but rather it's the power of hospitality, the power that transforms lives. You can be that transformative power of the grace of Jesus Christ, the heart of Jesus pounding inside of you. I insist on going to your house, Zacchaeus. I will be your servant in order to hear your soul box. You are too important for me not to spend time getting to know your life. Hospitality is not just preparing food. Hospitality is also being intentional about the least of these. Whether they are foster kids or corporate present presidents or yourself caring for your own heart and not working so hard or thinking that work is your goal and never having the time to care to wound to dress the wounds to feed the hunger within you to heal to forgive to release yourself into restoration like Zacchaeus did when he finally trusted Jesus enough to bring him home Hospitality is seeing the Zacchaeuses in our lives and stopping our mad dash long enough to say, I want to get to know you. I want to share time and space right now, here and now, interrupting my other plans because you are important to me. Let's pray.